Welcome to By the Glass, a podcast dedicated to boozy beverages and the people who make and drink them. I'm your host, Chris Paldoyan. My guest this week is a longtime friend, Aaron Smith. Aaron owns and operates a barbecue restaurant here in Houston with her husband, Patrick Feiges. Aaron's culinary career started in New York City, but after years working in Michelin-starred kitchens for Thomas Keller and Mario Batali, she took a consulting job at Williams-Sonoma, helping introduce restaurant-grade equipment to the home chef, just as sous-vide circulators and Vitamix blenders were taking off. After returning to her hometown of Houston, Erin helped co-found the nonprofit I'll Have What She's Having, which advocates for women in the hospitality industry. Erin <laughs> and I share a love of good wine, especially from the Canary Islands, so we popped a bottle of Envinate's Taganan Parcella Maralagua at Fiji's Barbecue and discussed what it's like pivoting barbecue sales online, running a charitable organization, and building a brand new restaurant in the midst of a pandemic all while raising a toddler. Aaron and I will find any excuse to open a bottle of wine together, so we hope you enjoy the conversation half as much as we enjoyed having it. So, here you go. Aaron, good to see you. Good to see you. We're seated on opposite sides of the room, but let's do a little air toast. We're doing an air Air toast. toast. Oh, man. What a time. What a time to be alive. What a time. So, we are drinking Envinate's Parcella Maralagua. Uh, mother of the sea from the the Canary Islands. Still haven't gone on that field trip. No, I'm waiting. I'm still waiting for that Camerata invite. Camerata field trip. <laughs> uh, the joke being that we used to uh, talk about going on a work field trip to the Canary Islands to Tenerife, where this wine's from, and just touring the vineyards. You know, a normal kind of work trip, well, something like paid that. Paid for by work, of course. Yeah. No, for sure. You spent a lot of time checking out vineyards, though, like during your time at Camerata, because you had your honeymoon while you were working at Camerata, and you went to the, didn't go to the Canary Islands, but you went to the Basque Country, and you went to Santorini, right? Yes. So we, yeah, we did pretty much, like, all of our exploration on Santorini was wine-related. You know, I think wine makes just traveling in general more fun. It gives you kind of, like, this focal point, this, like, determination to, like, seek out these wines that you can't find and to learn more about them. So we did as much as we could and Patrick was really game for it. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. I've never been to Santorini before, but like you read about the fact that this is a fucking imploded volcano essentially, and you're growing these vines that are hundreds of years old. I mean, what was kind of your biggest takeaway from that? So while we were there, we were there in March and it was Mm -hmm. considered like before their season starts. And so a lot of the vineyards were closed because the tourists hadn't really started arriving yet, which there were pros and cons. So there were they were closed. We couldn't go in and get the full um, spiel. We couldn't meet the winemakers, but we were able to kind of sneak into these vineyards because we would rent these ATVs and just go, the island's not very big. So we would just go on our own. Is that like a normal means of transportation in Santorini is ATVs? Oh or? yeah. I mean, pretty much... That's how people get around, hmm. especially all the tourists. But um, there's only two roads. It's like two highways that run parallel. That's so funny. And they're both one lane each way. So the traffic is terrible. I mean, traffic is yeah. miserable during peak season, which we didn't have to experience that. But um, the ATVs are really popular because you can kind of weave in and out. And But yeah, that's how most people get around. You just rent them for the day. Mm-hmm. But we would go to these closed vineyards and just walk up and down. I mean, granted, the downside was there was no explanation for a lot of it, but then we were able to supplement it when we were going somewhere that was open because a lot of the style of wine growing is the same on the island. Um, Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of new, really interesting producers, you know, Mm -hmm. like a younger generation of producer that are taking those really old grapes and those really old techniques, but they're kind of applying some of the newer you know trend to winemaking which um Mm -hmm. would have been i mean i really wish that we could have you know listened to some of them explain but um we were still able to try the wines because when you're on the island i mean all of it's available um but it was it was really cool they get really upset when they talk about vinsanto and you're like oh yeah like italian vinsanto and they're they're like, no, we and did like, it first. No, that. <laughs> it was ours first. They stole it from us. Oh, that's um, so funny. Yeah, who really knows? But it, it was good. Did I ever tell you about when we were in Basque Country, we went to um, Rithabal? Oh, you did? Yes. So I 
I think, uh, so um, Holly helped set it up for us. Shout out Holly Wing with Damis on Selections. Yes. And I'm telling you, like, Patrick and I drove there on, it was a stop on our way to Echibari. I forget, you guys flew into Madrid and then drove? Yeah. North? Yeah, I really liked having a car. It was always important to me when we were planning that we'd have a car so that we'd have the freedom to explore. Totally. And um, and I know how to drive stick, and Patrick apparently knows how to navigate. <laughs> um, just kidding. He did a great job. So we, we were able to leave San Sebastian and do these day trips. So we, we did lunch at Echibari, um, which was like a four-hour meal. But on our way to Echibari, we stopped. And, In Guitaria? Yeah. And did uh, and met and met with the husband and wife behind Reservoir, and they, um, I mean, they were phenomenal. They didn't speak very much English at all, and we spoke. They spoke Spanish, and obviously, I've got a little bit of Spanish. But it's amazing how much you can communicate with people that don't speak your language, um, just through like the things you convey with facial expressions and yeah. stuff. Like they were telling us about the winemaking. They because yeah, at that winery, it's really cool. They have the pergola system, yeah. right? So super cool. The vines are all like six feet off the ground to prevent any sort of like rot or mold from all the sea spray coming in. Yeah, right? it's just a really like moist, damp area. And then there was um, Fleisch, which is, it's spelled F-L-Y-S-C-H, I believe. It's been a long time since I've seen it written, but it's an interesting word because it's not, doesn't sound like a Spanish word, but mm -hmm. it describes like the slated stone that makes up the um the ground there and that's yeah. what the that's what makes that wine region so famous it's mm -hmm. also what makes dragonstone mm. remember and so yeah, that's yeah. i mean that's the that dramatic coastline with those sharp angled rocks yeah, yeah, yeah. um that's fleisch and that's the that's the um the ground there and that's what the the wines are growing in so we learned a lot um that was really cool it was just also just it's just amazing how hospitable, the, you know, they were. They they didn't know us. Um, they couldn't even really talk to us, but they served us lunch and they had, you know, sliced meats. And it was just that's the four so cool. of us sitting at yeah. their home table, you know, like that's their house. And uh, and then, of course, we had to leave. We were having a great time and it was just like, oh, my gosh, we've got to go. We've got a reservation at, you know, at Chibari. And it felt really mean to leave because we were having such a good time. But then Echibari was like the number one restaurant in the world, and that was a pretty amazing day in general. That that I've always wanted to go to that restaurant. Every time I've been in the Basque Country and I've tried to make a reservation, they're like full up. And I like it's always like the first thing I try to do as soon as I like plan my trip to the Basque Country. It's like, okay, can I get into Echibari? Yeah, I don't and think we confirmed our days in for our honeymoon until we knew. Like we we could have flip flopped Greece first or Greece last, depending mm -hmm. on the, the Echibari reservation situation, and that was the, I mean we pretty much planned everything around it. That's so cool for Patrick. I gotta imagine that going to a restaurant like that where everything is cooked over like fire, right? Like that's their thing at Echibari. For someone like Patrick, that's like so steeped in barbecue tradition. Like, what was his relation to that meal compared to maybe like yours? <sighs> so every. Everything we ate was amazing and also very simple, um, which was really different than some of the other meals we had in Spain that were more like, you know, gastronomical and this is... Yeah, because you also went to... Um, to Arzac. Arzac as well. Very which you said experience. was like a totally different, like you're eating like an iPad as a plate in one of the courses. No, you right? are. Yeah, you're eating yeah. on waves. The waves yeah. are coming from the screen of an iPad. And they were both good meals, but Echibari was just this level of, of like perfection through execution and product, right? Like they're sourcing, you're eating meat that they've grown and milk that, you know, comes from their cows and their buffalo and beer that they brewed. And, uh, you know, everything is from right there. The seafood is coming from those seas. So it's like the sense of locale is so intense, but also the, just the execution is so phenomenal. The one thing I wish is that we'd gone back into the kitchen. I think that would have resonated really well with Patrick, being able to see how everything came off of just these one or two things. So we've seen the shows, we've seen the kitchen from, you know, the various shows that they've been in, but it would have just, I think, really added to his experience to be able to see just that, you know, everything comes from wood and that's what, that's his medium, yeah. you know, is wood. Everything that he cooks is cooked from wood. Um, but I, 
we I don't know if we just didn't have the nerve to ask or they didn't really seem like that was something they did regularly at other, yeah. you know, world-class restaurants. They kind of let you know if you want a tour. Normally it's like, yeah, if they want you out of your spot, if they want to turn the table, it's like, <laughs> oh, let's take you on a tour of the kitchen. Right? right? Yeah, that, 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 they didn't offer that and we didn't ask. I wish we had because we may never get back there, but. Um, it's just, it's a, such a unique place. I mean, even just like you're looking out the window of the restaurant and you've got these really dramatic mountains. I mean, they're so steep. It's just so intense being out there and so beautiful. I think, I think I remember talking to Patrick about that meal and he was like, it's the most delicious shrimp I've ever eaten in my life. Yeah. And he doesn't normally like shrimp and crab and, but he ate everything and hmm. loved it. Do you remember, like, the wines that they served with the food there? I took a picture of every wine they served. I don't hmm. remember. Oh, wait. Was it there that you had a bottle of Suerte del Marquez? No, that was at Arzac. Uh, yeah. So yeah. at Echabari, we did wine pairings. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so it was, uh, you know, their pairings. And the wine was amazing. Yeah. Um, I didn't recognize any of them. Again, that was exactly how I wanted it. I wanted to be drinking wines that were, you know, specifically chosen and you know, a lot of them, I, I just don't know that we get them. A lot of them were, were local or from that area, from smaller producers. Um, but I took a picture of each wine so that I wouldn't forget. And then I've never looked at that <laughs> picture, those pictures again. Do you know who are the best wine pairings I've ever, like, not the best wines I've ever had, but the best pairings I've ever had was at BCN. Really? Yes. So we did a New Year's, it was my first BCN experience. We did a New Year's Eve dinner there, which was weird because, you know, we don't get New Year's Eve off. So it was like the, you know, coursed dinner. And those pairings were phenomenal. I mean, they did such a good job. And um, I think Echabari was was really, really good as well. But I'm just so impressed by that BCN pairing. And then I've been back to BCN, but I haven't done a wine pairing. I've picked my own wines. And of course, the wine was good. I've I've never had a full meal at BCN. I've gone and sat at the bar and like had a cocktail, but like never done the full experience. So I like it. I mean, it's pricey. Like it for me, yeah. it's like my extravagant, you know, my birthday or anniversary. But we also really like Mad, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, Mad's supposed to be more approachable. You're still going to spend as much at Mad. You just it's meant to be more. You really just go to Mad to get a bathroom selfie. That's really the goal. That is true. Yeah. The bathroom selfie is the new thing. Like, we're designing our restaurant with, like, a total bathroom selfie wallpaper that you're going to want to pose with. Oh, really? Yeah. That's sick. I loved when restaurants got really into, like, their bathroom, like, decor. I'm trying to think of other places that have really, like, succeeded with that. There was one restaurant. It might have been State Bird Provisions. might have been somewhere else in San Francisco. But they had someone reading aloud their bad Yelp reviews. Like they had recorded it and then like just played that in the bathroom. So while you're taking a shit, there's someone shitting on the restaurant. Right. So that was good. This is the worst experience of my life. One star. Yeah. Some some baloney like that. Um, I'm trying to think of others. I love Nancy's Hustle here in Houston that had like two separate bathrooms and they both had like a different theme. There was one that was like the pirate bathroom with like pirate wallpaper that was very whimsical. And there was like a fucking palm tree in there. Uh, and I, I don't know that level of curation where you're putting time and effort into your bathroom. I wonder if that's, it's something we've lost in the period of COVID. Well, I feel like I'm really missing out because I've been to Nancy's hustle plenty of times, but I've never used the restroom. Really? Yeah. I don't know about this pirate bathroom. I go out of the, out of the way to use the restroom every time that I'm there. I'm just chugging water, (laughs) just any opportunity I have to use the bathroom. Well, now I will use the restroom more because as somebody who's designing a, a restaurant, bathroom yeah i um i realized that like it's fun for the for the owners like that's where you have fun because it's a small space you can kind of afford it's cheaper to do the crazy stuff because it's a smaller you know surface area yeah for sure so like what's the game plan for uh fiji's barbecue number two bathroom oh that's a secret it's top secret this could be the fucking exclusive right here this is gonna get us all the clicks (laughs) you know the it's it's all about the wallpaper Okay. And the wallpaper in the women's restroom is um, somebody that I admire immensely, and I'm not going to say who it is. You'll just have to like come and see who it is. I'm excited to yeah. take a big old whiz in your bathroom. And then, it's going to be fun. And then the men's restroom is just very phallic. <laughs> and then the hall, the vestibule leading to the restrooms is just an ode to like an American icon. 
Okay, I'm excited. You, you've sold me. I'm excited <laughs> for this. Um, so yeah, let's let listeners know. So you, with your husband Patrick, run an incredibly successful barbecue restaurant here in Houston, Texas. One of my favorite barbecue spots in the state, Fiji's Barbecue. You guys like to say the best barbecue in a food court. Yeah, is that is that the official hashtag? What's the? It's the official hashtag because we don't really know of any other good food court barbecue. Like, that's meant to be good and artisanal and smoked in-house. So we, we feel really comfortable with that hashtag. Yeah. Also, you just said super successful barbecue restaurant, and it's been a few months since I've really felt like that super <laughs> successful barbecue restaurant. So it feels good nah, to hear it spoken nah. out loud to remind us that, like, you know, things will get back to normal. They will get back to normal. And, you know, at the end of the day, like barbecue, I think when I moved to Texas, like I had no preconceived notions uh, about, or I had a lot of fucking preconceived notions <laughs> about the state. What am I saying? I had like this very set idea of like what Texas is. And I was like, well, I'm trading all of these other things from living in San Francisco and Boston, like on the coast. Yeah. What I'm trading all that for is barbecue. That was like in my mind as a 22 year old moving to fucking Texas. That I was like, I guess I'm getting good barbecue. Yeah, you just that's what I've got. Traded going clam for chowder me. for some good barbecue. Swap out the clam and crab for fucking brisket, baby. There we go. Um, but so you guys opened in 2018, right? I think I remember the friends and family was like St. Patrick's Day. It was. You have a yeah. really good memory. St. Patrick's Day for St. Patrick. The patron saint of brisket, the <laughs> whole hog, Patricio. I hope he hears. I hope he's listening when this plays. Hell yeah! So that um, so that he can smile about that. <laughs> <laughs> so you guys, uh, when did you guys officially close the door? I guess did you ever really close the door to dine in? Did you guys close for any period of time, or did you immediately pivot from dine in to like a catering to go model? Was there any stretch of time where you were we, like fully empty? Starting March 9th. But I, I just remember going home and being like, we've got to get an online platform going because we didn't sell anything online. We had no e-commerce. We weren't designed to. We'd never wanted to, right? Like, yeah, that really, wasn't part of the yeah, business. Yeah, that was not part of our plan. And by Monday, after working 24 hours a day for like those four days, we had an online platform available through Square. And um, on Monday, we started doing online. So we would do pickup curbside we even did in-house delivering and we stayed really busy um through that like our sales from 2019 to 20 i'm sorry from 2020 to 2019 for those simultaneous weeks or whatever were um you know it was neck and neck so we were still doing pretty good but we were having to fight really hard for it and it was just chaos and crazy but it was working and then on the 17th they announced on St. Patrick's Day, <laughs> the exact anniversary, or, you know, our two-year anniversary. No, I'm sorry, our one-year. Yeah, two years. Two-year. Yeah. I have no idea what year it is. Um, Lena Hidalgo announced the stay-at-home, stay-safe, mm -hmm. stay-home, work-safe order. And within 24 hours, we just saw the market come from underneath us. Like, the, yeah. nobody was coming into the office. And we continued to do the online sales, but... We didn't, I mean, we didn't choose to close. The office was closed. Like, they were forced to shut this. And when we say the office, this, yeah. like, we should clarify for some people that maybe don't know, Greenway Plaza is this huge office complex that was originally built around the NBA team before they were at the Toyota Center. Once they moved, then this essentially stadium became like a hub for businesses, for Lakewood Church? So this is this office complex is, I think their 100% their occupancy is about 11,000 office tenants. A lot of people. So it's a big complex. A lot of humans. Yeah. And that, overnight, they had to shut down. I mean, they locked the doors, um, reduced access. I mean, you could still get in if you had all the right access codes, but um, it wasn't a place where you could just come in. And so we, you know, we shut, we shut down for lunch. We continued cooking and pivoting to our buy in bulk menu, which we still do. And I think we'll probably always do it. It's never going to go away because it's been, you know, it's pretty successful and people seem to really like it. But um, so yeah, we, we did shut down, but it wasn't our choice. It was a choice made for us. Um, and then we opened up for lunch again. We started serving lunch again in May when they wow. yeah when they opened up 
to 25%. That's crazy. Yeah. I mean, you know, you talk about how quickly you made that move, how you pivoted from not having a website to, you know, three days later having having a website, right? Um, but that isn't like the first time in your career that you've like made a hard pivot, right? Because you had been working in kitchens for a while before you pivoted to working for Williams-Sonoma, right? Yeah. Okay. So I pivoted away from restaurants to Williams-Sonoma because I was running with my tail between my legs. So, so you had been working in restaurants and then went to Williams-Sonoma where you had this really unique role where you were in charge of like tracking trends, like helping them as a company recognize what was hot in restaurants and how they could like turn that into a consumer product, right? Yeah. So they were, so my position was technically called culinary expert and they had um, culinary experts around the country. So representing the different region, sales regions within Williams-Sonoma. And we all knew each other. It was we as culinary experts were like a really tight knit group, even though we didn't see each other often. And we saw each other like once a year, but we did, you know, weekly conference calls. And what was already going on at Williams-Sonoma was they were partnering with PolyScience and they were partnering with chefs like Thomas Keller and the Voltaggio brothers um, to help promote some of these pieces of equipment. Um, and we take it for granted now, but we're talking about like the Vitamix. Vitamix was not something readily available to the home consumer. And PolyScience was producing, you know, circulators. Well, the whole idea of sous vide and vacuum sealing and, you know, circulation was not even a concept for a home cook. Mm -hmm. Um, so they were really trying to transition those cooking methods, um, into products that would sell to the home market. And so the group that I worked in with the culinary experts, I mean, our job was to just create recipes and do demos and teach cooking classes where we were utilizing these pieces of equipment and showing home consumers how they could, you know, do these things at home. And now it's like, now it's so everybody, I mean, that, like I talk to people all the time that have these pieces of equipment at home, but back then nobody did. In in terms of like time timing, like what year are we in when you took that job? 2010? Oh, I well, so sorry, like two thousand and nine. Yeah, is when I started. Yeah. So like two thousand nine, like if we were to go back to that, like, I mean, I'm trying to think like culinarily speaking, like who was really popular then? Like food blogs were fucking popping, and it was home cooks yeah. that were like doing things. Like Anthony Bourdain, like was still on his no reservations thing. He Parts Unknown wasn't a thing yet. Yeah, I feel like Thomas Keller really was the most popular yeah. chef at the time in the United States. Um, he was had either just put out or was about to put out under pressure. Hmm. Um, and so, and that was the first cookbook that really focused on the technique of... Sous vide, sous -vide. Yeah. yeah. And so it was unknown. I mean, even in commercial kitchens, it was relatively unused. I mean, I worked at Babo and there was, they didn't own that equipment. I don't know if they do now, but none of the cooking techniques in that restaurant utilized any of that. And that was pretty common. Um, because that, you know, the equipment was expensive and it was big and bulky. And that was part of what made, so when they started making equipment for the home cook, they actually inadvertently made it easier for smaller restaurants hmm. to also purchase oh, really? these things and be able to start implementing yeah. them. So like the two things grew simultaneously, home cooks using this equipment, but also restaurants now having more affordable access to this equipment. So when you think back to like that time and like how you were teaching these, you know, classes, because you said you would do demonstrations for people and stuff, you would be in-house like at a Williams-Sonoma answering questions for people. Like anecdotally, are there do you remember any of those exchanges or any of those classes that you had and kind of the, the sorts of people that were coming in and getting those things? Oh, yeah. I mean, it was I – don't, I don't know if I could really describe the sorts of people, but the types of things we were doing is we were showing people how to make mayonnaise in your Vitamix. Mm -hmm. Super simple, you know. Um, we were showing people how to make hollandaise either in the Vitamix because it worked in the Vitamix or you could do it, you know, vacuum seal the ingredients. And um, we made creme anglaise in a bag. Hmm. It's like fail-proof creme anglaise. Like those are things we still do in our restaurant here because um, consistency is so important. And I'd love to say that just every cook we have is capable of producing the exact same creme anglaise. But like 
I want to know that it's consistent. So we put all the ingredients in the bag. I learned that in my research for William Sonoma, like these, it's kind of funny to think about it that way, but, um, and a lot of it was using multiple pieces of equipment at the time, right? At the same time, so we would put everything into the Vitamix, blend it all together, pour it into the vacuum seal bag, vacuum seal it, and then throw it in this, into the circulator um, and let it sit in the water bath. Yeah. And you'd cook the eggs evenly that way. Rather than like a bain-marie or like a... Right, because it would you could hold that low temp, which is ideal for cooking eggs, right? You don't overcook them, you don't scramble them, you just get this really nice, consistent, smooth, overall... Um, cook and because there's more surface area, you know, you're cooking the egg even faster and it's no, low maintenance, right? You don't just sit there stirring it. So like egg-based sauces, that really resonated with people. Yeah. Did you notice like in terms of like savory versus, you know, sweet, whether there was like something that resonated more with consumers? So there, there are certain things that I think we categorize as you really only get them at restaurants because they're highly technical. So like there are not a lot of people that would make a hollandaise sauce at home for their family, right? A, because it's highly technical, and B, because it, it takes its time consuming, right? Um, so you're likely to mess it up and waste all of your time. People don't cook like that for your family. But these pieces of equipment and the demonstrations we were doing, were taking we were taking something that was like, only available at a restaurant because you just wouldn't do it at home and making it accessible for the home. The other thing that we really kind of kept preaching was um, consistency. So that's really important for restaurants, right? Like if you're cooking a medium rare steak, um, you can sous vide that steak, right? And pull it out, open the bag, and then just sear it. And that way, it takes some of the technical requirement away. So you're getting, you know, you're just getting that, you're achieving that consistent product. Well, for home, when you say, hey, you might not be good on a grill, um, that might not be your strong suit, but you can sous vide these and then just get a searing hot pan, brown them, and now you're cooking a perfect medium rare steak for your family. Yeah. Um, I think people just really liked the fact that it was, it took a, like a lot of the occurrence of failure out of cooking dinner. And that's, there's a lot of pressure in that. Like you don't want to put all that work in and then your family cuts into the steak and it's well done, right? Yeah. So those types of things resonated. The things that seemed unachievable were now achievable. Hmm. Was there anything, you know, I think the way I relate it to the wine world, right, is like we constantly have to like remind guests like not all Riesling is sweet. And we right. like bang our heads telling them like this is one of the best food pairings out there is like a dry Riesling. Just drink more Riesling. <laughs> like, and I feel like that's You're taking all, me yeah. back to the I know, right? Camera but like days. we would just bang our heads against the wall trying to get people to like understand that one thing, right? Was there one thing that like despite the amount of time you put in, it was still a struggle to get people to understand some like basic tenant of either cooking in general or specifically within that equipment that you were pushing? Yes, I'll never forget this. This happened repeatedly. Different people asking this question in different classes in totally different settings. Can I make that fat-free? Hmm. No, you can't make a hollandaise fat-free. You can't make mayonnaise fat-free. Um, mayonnaise companies can because they're not using real ingredients. I mean, they're real, but they're not using real ingredients. And so we were constantly getting asked that question because when you show people a recipe and you're like, okay, you take an egg yolk and now you slowly emulsify it with, you know, oil, um, it scares people away. And I just used to tell people like, you know, cooking is a science and you're, you're talking about molecules and you're creating a foam, like an emulsion is a foam. And you're, you're suspending that foam over a period of time. The more stable the foam, the more it's going to stay together, right? You need fat and you need protein. That is what the foam is. <laughs> if you take one of those away, you don't get a foam. You, I mean, you talk to baristas and you order, you know, a latte with, you know, fat-free milk. They get annoyed because it's really hard to create that nice foam with a milk that has no fat. It's about finding that perfect balance of fat to, um, to protein. And so you're not, with your Vitamix, ever going to be able to make a fat-free mayonnaise. Not a true mayonnaise, right? Yeah. Um, Hellman's can, but they're not using yeah. the, you know, they're not using real ingredients. No, for sure. I, and I feel like you see that all the time and people want to be able to turn that 
like create a fat-free thing at home, which is why at the store you can buy like fat-free brownie mix, where it's like yeah. you still get the experience of baking something yourself, but you're able to make it fat-free. Well, I just always would say, I mean, my response was, you know, are you, do you want it to be fat-free because you want it to be healthier? And they'd say, yes. And I'd say, well, it's, it's really healthy to eat real food. So this is already healthier, right? There's, you're not, it's not processed. It's fresh. Um, you, you can use organic eggs. You can use organic oils. Like you can control what's in here. And if you're trying to lower your intake, your caloric intake, you know, using real, you can use less. So like if you make a real mayonnaise, you don't need to put heaps on there, right? It's just so flavorful and so rich. Um, so you're saving the calories just by making it fresh because it's going to be so much better. And it really took me a long time in my life to really accept that as well because growing up, I, when I was in on high school and like doing diets, you know, I would just load up on sugar because sugar didn't have fat, right? Like yeah. candy, oh, look, these Skittles have no fat. Yeah. I can eat Skittles all day long. And obviously, like, I was young, so I actually would lose weight. Mm -hmm. um, but the reality is, like, the health reality of it is when you make food and you're using real ingredients, um, you don't really have to worry about fat. And there's usually not much sugar, right? Because natural things have some sugar, but they don't have the kinds of sugar that our processed foods have. And that was the one thing that I repeatedly had to answer <laughs> and address in almost every class we taught. Really? Yeah. Just make it fat-free. Make Can we make that fat-free? Oh no. You can't make that pesto fat-free because you need the oil. You can't make that mayonnaise fat-free because you need the oil. Yeah. Well, it's funny. And now now here you are running a barbecue restaurant. In, we can't make that fat-free either. Can, cannot make brisket <laughs> fat-free. Not, not possible. So you were talking about how you had made this transition from working in restaurants to this kind of like culinary expert consulting role. And you said kind of, you made that move tail between your legs a little bit. What, what was that about? Well, no. So the tail between my legs was I left the restaurant industry. So when I was in New York, we were approaching the holidays and I was working at Babo and my stress level was at an all time high. I was really unhappy and I did not, I didn't think I could get through the holidays being at the restaurant because the restaurants get more stressful during the holidays. And I just was like not wanting to be in that environment at all. So I was on my way to the subway and I passed William Sonoma and they they always hire for the holidays. And so there was a, a guy outside who's actually one of my close friends still who looks like Paul Rudd's brother. <laughs> and he was basically outside with these pamphlets like, to try to get really? holiday workers, right? Like, wow. And I grabbed a pamphlet and was like, I'm going to go tomorrow on my day off. And I was just looking for holiday. I was looking for a temporary job so that I could just quit and not be working at Babo anymore. And so I made, um, I scheduled an interview for a holiday job and I'm sitting down talking to the general manager and he's looking at my resume and he was like, um, we have the perfect position for you, but it's not a temporary position. And he explained what it was. It was the culinary expert role. He was like, you'd be working in this store, but your job would be kind of unique. And you'd, you'd have this role that's kind of more universal within the company. Mm -hmm. But you work here. You're still a sales rep here, but you get to do all these other things. And you get to do these classes. And you're just you're overqualified to be a temp, you know, to just be here temporarily would really... We really should say what else is on your resume besides just Babo at the time. You had been working for Thomas Keller. You had worked yeah, at Per so Se. Yeah, I'd worked at Per Se. I'd worked at um, Italian Wine Merchants. And then I was working at Babo currently while I was interviewing for that position. Um, those were the big things. You hadn't yet made your television debut on Chopped. That had, had not, not yet. yet. No. You had not won a Chopped episode yet. <laughs> I hadn't done that yet. Yeah, and so what he was explaining to me, I didn't know even existed, and but it just sounded like this perfect way to stay cooking because I still really loved and desired to cook. I just could not envision being in a restaurant anymore. It was really a dark, it had become a dark place. It had become a place where I just thought, there's no restaurant that's going to make me happy. It's so isolating. The hours are so awful. The way you get treated is so awful. The pay is so awful, blah, 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 awful, awful, awful. And then I had this opportunity. And so I took the job. I became a culinary expert and I did that for two years. And I was able to relocate to Houston because 
again, because it's like this, you know, national company. And mm -hmm. I lived in New York at the time. And I said, I'd like to move back to Houston. That's where I'm from. They all knew that. And um, guess what? There's Williams-Sonoma in Houston. <laughs> and so, you know, I transferred here. Um, but it was, I mean, it was, uh, it was a weird time to be like wanting to cook and wondering how are you going to continue cooking and not be in a restaurant? Yeah. I mean, you talk about, you know, being really burnt out at that point. Yeah. Was that just a continuation of all the stress that you had from previous restaurant jobs? No. So when I, when I started working at Per Se, that was my first real restaurant job. That was a, you know, that was the first. What a... What a, what a full-time rough job, <laughs> yeah. like to go from zero to a hundred real quick. I mean, jumping yeah. into per se of all kitchens, right? Yeah. And it was intense and it was crazy and it was overwhelming for like the first two weeks and I wasn't sure I was cut out for it, but then I got in my rhythm and I really enjoyed it. And I was working 14 hours a day and it was, it was not a stressful 14 hours. It was a hard 14 hours. There was a lot of pressure to do well, but there was also support to do well and people really... I felt like we're invested in making sure that, that I had the, you know, the resources to do it. Right. So like they'd show me, they'd instruct me, they were setting me up for success. I could work 14 to 16 hours a day there and not feel the burden of that workload. Babo was, couldn't have been more opposite than that. I mean, Babo was, um, I had a lot of friends at Babo. I had lifelong friends, coworkers that I still keep in touch with. But Babo just felt like you weren't there to win and nobody was there to help you do good. It just really felt like you were trying to survive the beatdown and it was like the daily beatdown, almost all of it coming from the executive chef. So Babo was part of a very large set of lawsuits that led to Mario Batali's departure from the organization when all of that went on in 2017, how did that make you feel seeing the place that you worked at at the center of this huge lawsuit? So many mixed emotions because I, I worked really hard there. And like I said, it wasn't easy. So it, it, it's painful in a way to see the legacy of the place where you've put you know, so much work into just demolished, but also it needed to happen. And mm -hmm. it had actually happened prior to that. In 2010, there was a lawsuit. Wasn't the climate in the U.S. wasn't the same. People weren't as ready to, to listen. And so that lawsuit kind of came and went without a whole lot of um, media attention. Mm -hmm. But the woman that was filing the lawsuit against what is it, B&B restaurant, whatever their yeah, yeah. restaurant group is. She was somebody that I'd worked with. So I was, I knew her, I was friends with her. I'd witnessed a lot of the things that she was saying happened. And, you know, it certainly all did happen. And she even had asked me to be part of the lawsuit. Um, and I unfortunately turned it down. I just wasn't in a good place. I was back in Houston and I just kind of thought I shut that door. But she, she had every right to file that lawsuit. I mean, there mm. was, everything happened in front of people. Nothing was behind closed doors. So there was certainly a lot of witnesses. There were certainly, I think, a lot of testimony that was just almost identical to what she was stating happened to her because the behaviors were really, you know, mimicked. Um, very little creativity <laughs> in, in the harassments mm. and the bullying. Um, but uh, yeah, I think what I'll always regret not stepping up and supporting her when she you know came forward back in 2010 but the new lawsuit the one that came out recently was a slightly different lawsuit because this one was directly um targeting mario batali whereas the lawsuit in 2010 was um it was suing mario and joe bastianich but it was a lawsuit claims against the executive chef and what I learned after the 2017 lawsuit was everything that we experienced when I was working there, the things that I went through, the harassment that I experienced and the bullying, it was very similar to what um, was being said about Mario. And so I realized these are learned behaviors. You know, the things that I was experiencing were learned by, you know, somebody who was a sous chef. 10 years before I worked there and had moved up in the ranks and had learned all of those behaviors. And it makes me sick to my stomach that that's 
you know, that means that's how long that went on and that that person might not have been that way otherwise. Um, and I'd given Mario a lot of pardons until I read the lawsuits about him. And now, now I fully think Mario is responsible for everything that I experienced. It must have been so hard at the time. When you're in those moments, it's very different than looking back on them. In retrospect, it's easy to see that something is a really unhealthy work environment. Or it's easy to think, oh, I should have pulled myself out of it. But when you're in that feeling, in that space, I mean, going into work, we both worked in restaurants where I think the environment wasn't great. But it's so hard because you believe in the food. You believe in making people happy. You're told constantly, you know, I need I need to get this food out. I need to set out this wine on time. I need to do whatever it takes to make sure that that customer is happy. And there's that idea of just agreeing to something bigger than yourself is kind of what we're sold on. Yeah. And it can be yeah. challenging in that moment to kind of see the bigger picture. It was, I, I think I knew this then, but I realize it more now. It was a really, really dark place. I mean, I think I said that earlier. I never realized how much that job was impacting my life. Like I was just a depressed person. But I also had put about six months in before things got really bad. And I didn't want to waste the six months. Those were still really hard months. I still worked really hard to get through them. And in the restaurant industry, there's this kind of unwritten rule that you're going to stick around for a year. It wasn't as much of an unwritten rule at Bobo. I mean, when they hire you, they say, you know, we've got a handshake contract that you're going to give us at least a year. And for some reason, that just really felt important to me that I was going to stick it out and I was going to put up with it. And I, and I didn't necessarily put up with it. I mean, I actually, I actually fought back. I actually talked back. I mean, I was a pariah in that kitchen because to the I, executive chef, to the executive chef, because I wouldn't stand for it. I didn't just accept it. And there were a lot of times where it made it a lot worse for me. And there were people like my friends in the kitchen would be like, just don't say anything. Like you're, you're instigating it now or you're egging it on, or it's getting worse because of how you're reacting to it. But it was bad no matter what. And so I was just kind of like, at least I can leave with my head held high because I'm not just going to take it. And so I became public enemy number one while I worked there. The executive chef absolutely hated me, but he couldn't fire me. I was, I had been hired specifically by Mario Batali, so he could not fire me. All he could do was try to make me miserable, and he was already doing that. And so I just went ahead and kind of stood my ground. I don't know how much ground I actually gained from doing it, but like I said, I was able to leave knowing that I stood up for myself. But it, it was, you know, it's, it's tough. It's a really, environments like that, whether you're in a kitchen or in any, any, any industry, or if it's at school, it's just you can't escape it. And I talked to the general manager. I talked to my parents. I mean, I'd gone to people and said, like, you know, what, what can I do? This is, like, this is inappropriate, intolerable. And these were people that I really respected, the people that I was going to. And the, the response was always this. Like, we get it. It's totally not fair. It's not okay. You can say something to HR, but that's probably not going to work out really well for you if you want to stay working here. So, like, if you like this job and want to keep working here, then unfortunately you just got to put up with it. And I don't necessarily think they were wrong. I honestly think that that's what would have happened is if I'd come forward to a higher level, like if I'd gone to HR, which was a company-wide position and not just, you know, Bobo specific, somebody who didn't know me mm -hmm. necessarily, there, it probably would have been a, you know, we can replace you. Like we can yeah. place you in one of his other restaurants. Like there wouldn't have been anything that would have, I th think, been worth it. It wouldn't have fixed any of the actual problems other than just removing you from the space. Yes. And then, and then I would have lost that six months that I'd spent there because you can't put a six month, like nobody wants to see that you were at Bobo for six months, right? So I stuck around um, for a year and a half total and made it so that when I left, it was on my resume. I'd earned the right to have Bobo and all the you know, accolades that come with that. Um, you know, some of those accolades are a little bit diminished now that <laughs> <laughs> they have such a poor reputation. But I worked really hard, and I think a lot of women make that choice. They make the choice to stay 
because it impacts your career. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's funny hearing you talk about this. It makes me think of all the work that you've done with this nonprofit called I'll Have What She's Having, which for listeners that don't know, it's a nonprofit here in Houston that empowers women in the hospitality industry and also advocates for women on a medical level, I would say, mm-hmm. uh, fighting for women's health care, fighting for women's reproductive rights. And you're one of the founding members of that. You know, you helped create that organization. And it's been so great for me to see the work that you've been doing there. I'm curious, do you see any connection to your time at Babo with the creation of I'll Have What She's Having? Yeah, certainly with my involvement in I'll Have What She's Having. I, I'll Have What She's Having is really, I think its foundation has lies in healthcare and advocating for healthcare rights for women. But it's also an organization that creates a safe space for women in an industry that is male dominated. I think it's so important for people to know they have peers, they have friends, they have mentors and people that they can talk to. Um, And that's been, I think this really big part of our organization as we've evolved and grown and our membership is expanding. We've realized the importance of that. And just, there's this huge network of women in Houston in this industry but until you get all of them into a room together talking, everybody's in their own isolated pockets, you know, dealing with their own issues in the kitchen. Um, I, I also think it's incredibly important that women feel empowered to stand up for themselves. Um, and sometimes that just that confidence comes from having your network and, ha- and knowing that there are other people that have experienced it and learning from those experiences. So I think our organization is hugely important in our community because we provide, you know, we provide that sense of, um, of space for people. And it's easy for us to talk about it in very positive terms, but you've gotten a fair bit of heat in the past for the work that you've done with I'll Have What She's Having. Yeah. You know, I'm thinking back to that uh, <laughs> big spread in the Houston Chronicle where you're talking about fighting and advocating for women. And, you know, I think it was the very next day you got that, like, fucking one Yelp, <laughs> one-star one Yelp, Yelp review. review. Yeah, I was actually delivering Wyatt when that Yelp review was posted. And so, Patrick is on his phone reading it, and I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm busy right now. <laughs> but, um, no, he was really upset about it. I think... It's, you know, I wish women's healthcare wasn't controversial. I wish women's equality and women's rights weren't controversial. But in this day and age, they still are. And people, I think, have a really hard time separating, you know, things that they profoundly believe in from a woman's right. And so, yes, it is controversial. I recognize that. It shouldn't be. The comments made on Yelp, um, that person had every right, in my opinion, they had every right to feel the way they felt, to say what they said, to take their business elsewhere, as they stated they would do. Um, I don't think it's appropriate to put it on Yelp, which is not a platform for political uh, agenda. So I, I, I did disagree with the fact that we got a one-star review on something that had nothing to do with an experience at our restaurant, um, but just a, you know... Also, you were very busy at the time focusing on <laughs> other matters. Yeah, but we had... I think, What's more empowering for a woman than fucking delivering a child, in, like nothing. bringing a child into this world? Nothing. Come on, baby. Raising that- a child, birthing a child, whether you do it naturally or not naturally, whether it's, you know, an adoption or not. The whole process is the most empowering thing in the world. And there is no man and no Yelp comment that can take that away. There we go. I love it. So I'll Have What She's Having is this amazing organization, and it's done so much, but I'm sure you've had the same thought that I've had. You know, so many restaurants are generous with their time and with their money. I mean, when most people think of organizing a fundraiser or doing a silent auction or something, one of the first things they do is they go to their favorite restaurant and they ask for a gift card Mm -hmm. or a free meal. You know, and restaurants in general do a very good job of giving back to their communities by getting involved with nonprofit organizations. I mean, when I was the general manager of Camerata, we hosted a couple of events for I'll Have What She's Having. And, oh, I mean, like, (laughs) I I love doing it, but I also had no qualms asking people for donations, like wineries, like asking if they could donate a case of wine for us to pour. Mm -hmm. You know, this hospitality industry is, has allowed so many nonprofits to 
have events? How are they going to be able to do those events? How are they going to be able to have those things if restaurants cannot donate? You know, and restaurants shouldn't have to donate right now. Restaurants are struggling to just pay their bills at this moment. They don't have time to donate to all of these nonprofits as they previously were just giving out gift cards for. Yeah. I mean, this is a this is a big question that we have in our organization. This is a big question that I believe most charitable organizations are either struggling with or just trying to see how it evolves. When we started I'll have what she's having, we it's a volunteer organization. We recognized that we were going to be asking the same people we were trying to raise awareness for and raise what funds for, we were going to also be asking them as volunteers to be donating time and time and which is money, right? Time, money. And we were really careful to make sure that we were going to be delivering on such a, you know, such an important thing that it was going to be worth their time. So if we were asking you to participate, you know, as a chef in an event, you know, the outcome of that is that you're going to get access to healthcare, that we're going to set up this fund, right? So we really, really, it took us two years of a lot of work and a lot of volunteering and a lot of events to get to a point where we 100% deliver an amazing product back to our members, right? We've made it worth their time. Now, everything's different, right? We can't ask, we can't go to our members and say, hey, like, donate more of your time. You're stretched so thin, you're probably teaching your kids from home, you might have been laid off, but we want you to cook this dinner. We can't ask that. We, like, I think that would be incredibly insensitive. Um, we've realized that the most urgent need right now is to make sure that our members have uh, income options, that they have resources. And so we've shifted our whole online platform. You know, our website is now really just this, it's pivoted to this thing called pivot dinners, which are these home dinners um, that our members are putting on. And, and it's giving our members an opportunity to actually earn an income uh, through resources outside of, you know, their restaurant or um, they might be furloughed. So we've pivoted and I think we're, we've done a really good job with that. Um, it's really hard to say what the future looks like. It's really hard to say, you know, when we'll be able to shift back to the healthcare. Healthcare is still really important right now. It's just kind of secondary. Like it, it seems like we've really got to get people an income and we've really got to get people into a stable environment um, where they, you know, have options for childcare and their kids and stuff. So once we kind of, once we're able to look past that, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, we'll get right back into the healthcare and we'll, I think just have to keep a pulse on the community and, and the industry. And when it's ready, we'll start asking again. Um, but we just need to be really aware of that and not, and not ask too soon. Yeah, man, shit got deep. <laughs> it did. It did. And on top of all this, you're a fucking mom. You're fucking momming yeah, it up. That's the craziest part of all of this. We've talked about like your other baby, the restaurant. Yeah. Like trying to make that work, but. Oh man, being a parent right now is fucking the craziest drug there is. Are we talking like a good drug? Like are we talking Molly and weed? Or are we talking like a bad drug? Like No, fucking... it's mostly good, but okay. it's, I mean, it's mostly good in the sense that children are this like shining beacon right now. Like they're the reason that we want to go home at the end of the day, right? Like I don't just go home and wallow in my poor circumstance and feel sorry about it. I go home and I have world. to yeah. I have to be Wyatt's mom and it's an awesome job. It's like this fun role. I get to read the same book 46 times. Um, <laughs> and for the most part, we don't even go through every page because he controls the page turning. So it's just, it's, it's just being, like, oh, it's like go being in page, Wyatt's yeah. mind is phenomenal. It's this, I want, I want to live there forever. <laughs> the hard part is you can't live in there forever, right? So it's like you're in this world where you're somebody's parent and you have to really be protective of them and make sure they eat three meals a day or for Wyatt, it's like eight meals a day. Like he's just like crazy ravenous child. Um, but I think about all the times where I just would have not really taken care of myself or been like, I'm going to sleep or I may not eat today because I don't want to get out of bed or, um, I'll just not go to the grocery store and just get takeout for the next three weeks. Like those types of things are not the reality of a parent, right? Like you still have to go to the grocery store. Like we want Wyatt eating fresh food. 
So we're, you know, you have to constantly be buying bananas and getting him good yogurt and checking labels. It's like my ability to take care of this other human being is so much greater than my ability to take care of myself. <laughs> and during a pandemic, that's exacerbated. Like that is just put on this whole new level of just craziness. And so it's good and it's bad. Um, it's challenging. It's a lot of fun. I really wish I could take him to the zoo, but I just don't really want to go to the zoo right now. I mean... Well, also at his age, right? Like in the sub five-year-old category, there's a lot of development that goes on yeah. every like quarter, let's say. You can like track like relative... Every change. week. Yeah. He didn't use words a month ago. Now he is signing to me. It's crazy. His first word was more. That's the epitome more? of white male privilege right there. Oh, my My son's God. first word was more. And he what doesn't, was he referring to? He more He doesn't of what? ask food. It's always food. He doesn't ask nicely. He's just like, more, more. But he doesn't use the whole word. He goes, more, more, more. <laughs> but with like a really demanding tone. Yeah. Like, cut that fruit up faster, bitch. Hell yeah. Like that. That's so funny. Oh, my God. <laughs> like, he had his first birthday January 15th. And then I feel like pretty quickly after that, the world turned to shit, right? All of this stuff happened. He is about to celebrate his second birthday. Not about. He's, a, he's got six more months. But I feel like that <laughs> six months is just going to fly by, right? I yeah. still haven't put away the decorations from his first birthday. Oh, my God. And now I don't want to because I'm no. like, I'm just going to blow all those fucking dinosaurs back up and put up that stupid shitty garland. Because you know what, Wyatt? Your second birthday is going to look an awful lot like your first birthday with no guests. Yeah, I was going to say. With We're just going to blow up a bunch of balloons. People. Not that he knows the difference anyways, because everybody at his party, they, those were our friends, not, <laughs> not his. But um, it's like time, it's like he turned one and then time stood still. Even though so much has happened since then, I just... When it comes to his world, I feel like not much has happened. Like yeah. in his world, very little has changed. Time has stood still. He's he still progressing. Got he's a meeting mom. all. He's still got a dad. He's still got a dog. He's his dog is his best friend. Yeah, I mean, it's like the small world that he lives in has not moved forward. Other than like daycare, he still goes to daycare. Right? He still goes to daycare. I know it's probably really controversial, but like everybody has to make the decision that is best for them and for us it was daycare it is an option his daycare never closed and they have not had any outbreaks or issues so we've been very fortunate um but there's absolutely no way i could have continued to work and had wyatt at home with me full-time there's a, a there's a it's a non-option we did try it <laughs> we we did try it we gave it, it the college try work. Um, we did it for two weeks and it was really hard to do and we were not getting anything done. It was two weeks while the restaurant was closed for lunch, but we were doing bulk. So like we were able to make it work, but it was this really fucked up schedule where Pat, like Patrick would go in the morning and then I'd go in the afternoon and then Patrick would come back after me. And it was crazy. So my parents offered to watch Wyatt and that lasted about three weeks and they did a great job and they were, you know, superheroes for doing it. But then we actually decided that we needed my dad. My dad is our project manager for the second location. Yeah. And I was like, I, I actually need you to be more available. Mm -hmm. And you're not because you're watching my son. Yeah. So we've got to put Wyatt in daycare and you've got to get back to work. <laughs> but we're not paying you. Other than Wyatt babysitting, like has, has that been affected at all? Either in like your vision for the restaurant um, or the timeline for the restaurant, has any of that changed because of COVID? Kind of, sort of. Not in a huge way, but like we have the opportunity to really emphasize like a takeout and have, mm -hmm. you know, which we were already doing. We had already thought like that. But yeah. now we're like really saying, okay, this is critical. It's not just like a are we or are we or not. Now are you thinking like about that in terms of like real estate within the restaurant? Like yeah. you want to have a designated space for like bagging and building yep. to-go orders? Real estate within the restaurant, how we design the kitchen, um, having a big storage area for to-go mm -hmm. containers um, and a place where somebody can build those, those orders um, outside of the hotline where food's just going to go out, um, a pickup window. We don't – we chose – 
we didn't choose not to have a drive-through, but a drive-through would have drastically changes, changed our plans. And so we opted to not do a drive-through, but to make pickup easy mm-hmm. and possibly even do some curbside where we could have stations. Yeah. Texts will bring it out. Um, that's, that's pretty easy. And, um, our, our layout was already pretty spaced out because we had more space than we needed. And we, if we'd filled it with what we could have for tables, we would have just overwhelmed the kitchen. That was always the plan was to really space it out. Um, we also wanted to be super family friendly. So I was always thinking like, it's got to be big enough for the upper baby Vista to fit through, which is like the fucking Cadillac of strollers. It's like a double wide, but it's not, it's a single, it's just so wide. Yeah. Um, and I'm like, oh man, I remember working at Houston's and people trying to bring their strollers in and yeah. park them at the table. It was brutal. So we were already planning on that and we already mm-hmm. had substantial outdoor area. Those were just, these were just coincidental things, right? We had this huge outdoor area. I think the outdoor area is now even more important. If we didn't have outdoor seating, I'd be really concerned about the second location. Um, other changes that, or impacts that may or may not happen. We might experience some issues with the supply chain. We might experience some issues with just the response times and being able to get, you can't have your electrical team and your plumbing team in there at the same time, right? Like the contractors are really having to be mindful of the number of employees and contractors that are in the space at one time. All of that is undoubtedly going to slow things down. We have so much time that even if it slows things down, I think we'll still be on track. Um, I also, we're not in a rush. Like I, we're planning to open March, 2021. I don't want to open a day earlier. Like what's the point? What's the rush, right? Like, is the world going to be ready? Not before they might be ready after, but they're not going to be ready before. And so we're, we at least have the luxury of being able to build this out, um, without feeling the pressure to just rush because that's usually the pressure most people have. It's just like time is money, time is money, time is money. Well, for us, it's like, (laughs) no, we're good. Slow is good. We're good. Drive slow, homie. Just ride it out. Ride it out. Do it right. I I imagine also like on a financial level, like probably having a little more like operating capital, like having, having a longer runway is beneficial, right? We're so conservative. We haven't changed our runway because our Hmm. runway was already pretty significant. Really? Yeah. We build that, we build capital reserve and a reserve operating capital into our pre-opening budgets. We've did that on both projects. Um, I could never have understood how important that would be. I knew enough to say we needed it. Now it's why I don't lose sleep at night over my restaurant that exists, that's operating Greenway. Greenway has a healthy savings. We don't want to have to use that savings because that savings means we don't have that cushion for hurricane or, you know, whatever might happen in the future. Um, but it's there and that's, it's a security blanket. Um, and because I can sleep at night, it's why we'll have it for number two, because like the worst position to be in is to not have anything to fall back on. And we've got we've got something to fall back on, and we know how important that's going to be for number two because our overhead's much more significant. Like our our labor force is going to be bigger, our rent's going to be more substantial, um, our inventory is going to be bigger. We're going to have beer and wine. Um, all of those things are pressures we don't have here at Greenway, so we know we have to build in the security for that. What do you think the wine program is going to look like over there? That's an excellent question. Um, well, you were talking about that Greek sparkling wine earlier. Hell yeah, dog. I'm going to try to find that, although I know that's... Shout out Glenavos Winery. Yeah. Glenavos. Yo, Greece, what up? <laughs> Maybe we should do a field trip there. Field trip to Greece. I yeah. love it. Um, For sure, that Kleto Chiarli. Dude, fuck yeah. Yeah. How did your uh, events... Uh, events plural 13? because you did two of them. Yeah. How did your uh, barbecue and wine events go over at 13 Celsius? Um, they went really well. It's all relative. Like they went really well if you're comparing it to other COVID-19 timeframe events. Um, events don't do as well as they used to, right? Like people don't want to stand in line in a group, right? But like those events have gone really well. 13 Celsius has been awesome. The staff there is amazing. They let us be inside. So we're in the AC, which is just that, like a huge helpful. game changer. Like yeah. pop-ups 
in the summer can be brutal outside, but because we're inside and the line gets to be inside, um, AC is our friend. I think Adele's done a really good job of picking some fun and interesting wines, and the She's price points are amazing. Yeah. Every time we do a pop-up there, I show up with Wyatt, and I buy three wines. I don't even buy barbecue because, you know, I get that all the time. But I buy three wines and take them home, and um, I'm just constantly looking at their wine list. Like, I can't believe the prices are that good, but they're doing a good retail discount right now. Um, but wine and barbecue is a beautiful thing. Um, and I, I really wanted to be the first because I, I had this idea like six years ago. Um, but since then, people have really picked up on it. And so I will not be the first um, to, to really. Hey, you don't have to be the first. You just got to be the best. Exactly. doesn't matter who did it first. I planned on having you help too. Hey, there we go. There and we go. And I feel like Canary Island wine has a little bit of that like kind of uniqueness. Yeah, it's like Burgundy Plus. Like, it's got mm -hmm. all the elements you like in a good Burgundy, but then it's got, like, this, like, really cool kind of smoky character that you don't get out of Pinot, right? And there's, yeah. like, more structure to these varieties, like Liston Prieto yeah. and fucking whatever else, Malvasia Negra, whatever. Like, this is a fucking blend of, like, a bunch of different grapes. But predominantly, Liston Prieto, Liston Negro, those are the main red grapes of the Canary Islands. And... You know, they're medium skin varieties that just impart this amazing character. Plus, they're all vineyards influenced by these Atlantic currents. You know, yeah. grapes getting fucking flecked with sea spray. Like, it's fucking delicious, you know? It's like you can taste the place. If we go, which we will. When we go. When and we the go. air doesn't taste like this wine, I'm going to be so... It's like meeting your idol and they turn out to be scum. So let's hope that doesn't happen. Before I let you go, Aaron, let people know where they can find you on Instagram. I am at purslane underscore Aaron. And purslane, what is that exactly? Um, purslane is a persistent stubborn weed that is actually quite flavorful. And I feel like that used to be a metaphor for me back when I thought about myself more than I do now. <laughs> And that was our conversation. Uh, if you have not been to Peach's Barbecue recently or ever and you're in Houston, you should absolutely go. Um, it's F as in Frank, E-G-E-S-B-B-Q. They're located in Greenway Plaza. The baked potato stuffed with brisket is fucking delicious. So order that. Order their barbecue in bulk Monday through Friday. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon.